Well, welcome again, everyone, to the Institute for Government and to everyone online uh, for our second keynote of the day, uh, which I'm delighted to say is from John Glenn, Minister for the Cabinet Office and Paymaster General, and Member of Parliament for Salisbury and South Wiltshire since 2010. Uh, normal drill for this event, for all the events, uh, same as we've been doing throughout the day, we'll be tweeting from IFG events uh, using the hashtag IFGGovd24. So please do follow and, well, we don't tweet, do we? We X along. Um, and if you're online, please do start sending in your questions via Slido, which will ping up on my uh, iPad here and I can put to the minister later on. So I should say we're particularly pleased uh, to be joined by John today because his recent ministerial career spans many of the aspects of government uh, that we at the Institute are most interested in. Um, as CST, he kicked off a review of public sector productivity for the Prime Minister and now at the Cabinet Office he has turned his attention to civil service reform, a subject very close to our hearts. <coughs> This afternoon, we'll be launching our annual Whitehall Monitor report, looking at the size, shape, and performance of the civil service. And we may have given the minister a sneak preview. Um, so we're looking forward to hearing what he thinks about our conclusions. So, Great. John, over Thank to you. Thank you very much, Hannah. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you all here today. And I would obviously like to start by thanking the Institute for Government for hosting this event. And I'd like to thank Hannah for her engagement leading up to it. I enjoyed her blog yesterday and did manage to skim the Whitehall monitor as well. Today, I want to outline the next steps of civil service reform and how I will build on my predecessor's work to make the civil service a lean, keen, and productive machine. But before I look to the future, I would like to look to the past. Modernization and reform have always been a crucial part of the civil service. In fact, the modern civil service was born out of a report, as I'm sure many of you know, from 1854, one that argued the case for urgent reform. The Northcote Trevelyan report focused on creating a permanent civil service based on integrity and honesty. Now, I'm paraphrasing here, but the report ends by stating, our priorities are to provide efficient public servants, to foster merit, to overcome the fragmentary nature of the service, to get the best people, to encourage good work, to improve the structures of central government. It could have been written yesterday, but actually next month that report celebrates its 170th anniversary. And I think these priorities will speak to the public's concerns. They want a public service that is easy to navigate, one where the best people are in the right jobs, where their lives are made easier by government decisions. And it's these priorities that I will discuss today and how I will seek to help the civil service to achieve them. Now, the size of our civil service has always shifted. It shrunk following the financial crisis after 2010. In 2016, it grew to deliver Brexit, and it grew in 2020 to respond to the pandemic. It's clear that as the world changes, the civil service must change too. And this is right. The public would expect an adaptive and agile service, one that can respond to the big challenges facing the country. Just think of the furlough scheme, the AI safety summit, or all the work that's gone into making us one of the highest performing education leaders in the world. These are significant achievements worth remembering. 
It is also worth remembering the range of roles in the civil service. They make up our government departments, agencies, and public bodies. But they're also the people who translate the policies of politicians into action. They work incredibly hard. But crucially, and we need to remember this, hard work does not always equal great productivity. We must improve to keep pace with innovation in the private sector. For too long, productivity in the public sector has not been a high enough priority. We have thrown more people at our biggest challenges, but have more to do to embrace the potential of technology and innovative ways of working. And as a very recent Chief Secretary to the Treasury, I know that public finances are tight. They're always tight if you ask a Chief Secretary. Now, having established the Public Sector Productivity Review, I focused on squeezing every pound to deliver for taxpayers. And I carry that focus with me in my new role in the Cabinet Office. I know how important it is that the civil service cracks its productivity puzzle. Because doing so will open the door to greater productivity across our entire public sector. We can only afford a civil service that embraces innovation, especially when we consider the challenges ahead. Demand for public services is growing, not just because of the immediate cost of living pressures, but an aging population means we need to carefully consider many of our policies. The cost of running government is also increasing. Tech costs more, and government debt costs more to manage. So we have a public that is rightly expecting more, but is also costing us more just to stand still. Now, as the minister responsible for civil service reform, I'm relentlessly focused on its future. It is clear we have to do more with less. But I don't think it's about cutting corners. It is about being more productive. It's about encouraging the best possible performance. It's about bringing our people with us to embrace the possibilities that modernization brings. Now, I hope I'm not arrogant enough 10 weeks into the job to think I'm the first to recognize these challenges. My predecessors, and there have been many of them, have set some fantastic work in motion already. <coughs> Most recently, Sir Jeremy Quinn, and not least the inimitable Lord Maud and his series of reforms. And I was happy to discuss this speech with him last evening. The foundation for my work is the declaration of government reform led by Michael Gove in 2021, where all permanent secretaries and the cabinet agreed a programme of reform. It was an ambitious programme focused on greater efficiency and productivity. And we've already made some great progress, like merging 200 legacy IT systems into five corporate services. And we've moved 16,000 London civil service roles into cities, like Aberdeen, Cardiff, Wrexham and Belfast, making a civil service representative of the public it serves. That's all good, but what's missing? For me, there are three areas we can focus on to accelerate civil service modernization. Embedding technology, embracing simplicity, and enabling people's potential. So let me first turn to technology. 
My vision is that every single civil servant is either actively delivering or enabled by digital technology in their day-to-day -day job, whether that's eliminating bureaucracy or coming up with new ideas to support our citizens. Much of the focus is on how we in government use AI. But I'm clear that it's not an inevitable solution. AI will only work if it's properly embedded, if it's clear why and how we're using it, and that civil servants get the right training and support to use it well. I'm pleased to say we are already taking exciting first steps to unlock the benefits of generative AI, ensuring that our AI teams are working with industry experts in order to solve some of the public sector's most pressing problems, like launching AI pilots to make it easier for people to claim compensation in the case of criminal injury. I believe better use of technology allows us to encapsulate everything that I've already spoken about. Powered by the right people, it will improve how we deliver to the public at lower cost. For example, before, if you wanted to sign a mortgage deed, complete a DBS check, or manage your company's apprenticeship scheme, you had to sign into each specific government website, re-enter your personal details again, and again, and again. So we released a gov.uk app which uses the one login system. It's already been downloaded four and a half million times, and it's whittled 29 service logins down to just one sign-in process. It's so successful, we're rolling it out to over 100 other services this year. And it's a great example of how we can better serve the public, especially where they engage directly with public service. But tech and artificial intelligence are not a one-size-fits-all solution to our issues. I believe there is a lot we can do by simplifying our processes. Inevitably, the government is and always will be a complex organisation. But I fear that now it's more complex than it needs to be. Complex processes hide inefficiencies. Simplifying how we work will make the civil service more productive and will help us improve public services. I want to acknowledge the work of my ministerial colleague, Esther McVeigh, who has come into her new post in the Cabinet Office to root out our inefficiencies. She brings a refreshing clarity and analysis to how the government works, a clarity which I and the public truly welcome. It was a vision shared by Lord Maud, who also wanted to see improved accountability. Today, we are considering ways to improve accountability in the civil service, including accountability to ministers. The public expect no less, because they too want the processes and services they use to be more straightforward. So take universal credit, for instance. It replaced a complicated landscape of multiple benefits administered by multiple organizations. Now, at points along the delivery journey, people were complaining it was taking too long. But we stuck to it and steadily implemented it. And now, five years after its introduction, the change it has brought is remarkable. It provided essential support throughout the pandemic rapidly and will save 650 million per year by 2027. Now, that was a big idea with big benefits. And it didn't just happen. It took combined effort of civil servants, local councils, politicians, 
and thousands more to make it work, and I pay tribute to them all. Who over half a generation have transformed this complex service into a simple and productive one. Projects like that demonstrate how our approach to policy development needs to change. It needs to prioritize productivity as a goal from the outset and ensure we are building an evidence base demonstrating which interventions work and which don't. But it's not just the public-facing work we need to reconsider. We also need to reevaluate the labyrinth of processes that make up the back offices of government. And that means doubling down on the function reforms agenda that Lord Maud began, which is why we introduced functions in 2013 to raise standards of specialist work across government, renewed approaches to functions like commercial, finance and project delivery have delivered £7.8 billion in efficiencies uh, between just the two years 2020 to 2022. But we need to go further and actually create a way of doing things that gets things done well and done quickly. So let me give you a specific example of the kind of efficiency I'm talking about. Now, let's say you're a new civil servant. It's your first day in government department. You need to get an ID card, but security clearance is a rigorous process, and for some, that can take many months, so you only get a temporary pass. You need a laptop, but IT don't have one available, so you have someone else print out all your induction material, and you remain offline for a while in a very online world. It's now a couple of weeks. Without proper access to the building, you don't have a laptop, and you don't have an online account. And to resolve each one of these pressing issues, you have to speak to a different person. Now, does this sound productive to you? Of course it doesn't. From launching a job advert to getting that new civil servant sat at their desk takes an astonishing, on average, up to 115 days. Now, we can, we must, and we will do better, which is why we're piloting a new model to make one person accountable for this process end-to-end, -end, making sure that new starters in the civil service can start quickly with all their needs met and be productive from day one. And that leads me to the final focus for my speech uh, today, people. Undeniably, people are the civil service's greatest asset. But I believe that the current system is letting us all down and doesn't enable our staff to achieve their best. Complex structures mean that measuring progress can be difficult. Our ways of incentivizing high-quality performance are limited. People feel like the only way they can progress is to shuffle roles, all leading to dissatisfaction, which of course results in the civil service churn being too high. It's a serious challenge for us, one which the IFG uh, says costs the public nearly 36 million a year on recruitment, training, and loss of productivity. We know that pay isn't everything for civil servants, but it is undeniable that it is a deciding factor for them to move roles. Pay, too, can prevent the external talent the civil service desperately needs. Only one in five successful senior civil service recruits is external, and vacancy rates for crucial digital and data professionals is at 15%, which undermines our digital transformation ambitions. So my ambition is simple, a smaller, more skilled civil service that is better rewarded. 
Its simplicity masks the challenge, however, in implementing it. But I believe the time to make that change is now. Which is why I'm pleased that we are reviewing our pay framework for digital and data professionals to ensure these roles can compete with similar roles in the private sector, especially those that will be at the forefront of AI delivery. Not only will this attract and retain talent, but it will also save the taxpayer money with savings of up to 270 million by reducing reliance on expensive contractors. My message to today's tech leaders is this. Yes, the civil service is doing everything it can to compete on pay, but no tech giant, no FTSE 100 company, no unicorn anywhere will ever compete with the level of work that you will do in the civil service. Now, I've been fortunate enough to work in a number of government departments alongside many great people, and some of them are here today. And when I reflect on some of those people, uh, and I'm loath to name any of them uh, individually, the commitment that they showed me and the determination to give, give me good advice and to go the extra mile was legendary and instrumental in me being able to achieve or anything that I was able to achieve, if that can be judged. Now, that environment often comes down to the culture our line managers create. And they help improve performance, giving their teams clarity, support, and accountability. When line management is done well, it is transformational. Now, there are over 100,000 civil servants with line management duties. And if they're good at their job, this can improve productivity by providing clear expectations, training, and support for their teams. We also know that standards of performance management can too often vary between teams and departments. Staff might not be getting full, honest feedback that helps them address issues or help progress their careers at the right pace. And that is why we'll be setting out the line management standards we want across the civil service. I think this must be the bit that Playbook referred to as the Christmas Day for wonks, because it's obviously quite technical. But providing the support to managers they need to achieve these is critical. Yet in some cases, consistently underperforming staff can languish in roles or move between departments without properly addressing the reasons for poor performance. And in the worst cases, managers can too often feel unable to remove consistently poor performers. Now, that is a problem that needs a solution. The public sector, as, and I, as I experienced it in the private sector, as one who used to work for me, I see at Accenture here today, which is why I'm pleased to announce that I will work with civil service leaders to review our performance management approach. And this will build on the best practice already happening across much of the civil service. And it's only fair to our staff that we support them with proper, honest management. But let me be clear, we are not dodging our responsibilities to deal with bad performance. Whether it's consistent poor performance in a very small minority of staff, we must take necessary action to address that. It's something which is a cause of real frustration for our civil servants, particularly senior civil servants, some of whom can feel they have to tiptoe around a colleague's uh, lacklustre performance, or have to uh, work extra hard to make up for it. It's just one of the many things that frustrate them, which can be resolved by better management. Another is working from the office. And there is no denying 
that there are many benefits to colleagues working all together in the office. People can be more productive and complex tasks can be overcome more efficiently. Now, I've already set out the expectation for staff to be in the office at least 60% of the time, and I believe that our senior civil servants need to set an example as leaders, and I want to consider how this expectation can be baked into our management of senior staff, which is why we'll be making this distinction clearer for senior civil servants at the start of the performance year. Ultimately, I want staff to bring themselves, their ideas, their passion, and their dedication into the office to tackle problems together. I've already spoken about how we are building a public sector that reflects the society it serves. But I know that there have been questions raised on the role of staff networks in supporting that effort. Now, I am sincerely grateful to the work of civil servants in these networks who help to make their profession open and inclusive. And the data in the Whitehall Monitor today um, I think between pages 59 and 61, proves that. <laughs> it speaks to the vibrancy and dedication of our staff. But managing these networks should not become a second job. I believe we have an opportunity to improve how these networks operate and, sure, and ensure that they do not impact our broader productivity. So I've been working with my ministerial colleague, Esther McVeigh, to look into how staff networks operate across the civil service and we will be publishing guidance shortly. We must also ensure these networks uphold the civil service's long-established rules on impartiality. And that's why we're introducing new impartiality guidance, which will support civil servants to remain objective when engaging in diversity and inclusion work. We must make sure our civil servants can express themselves and maintain the trust and confidence of the public. So ladies and gentlemen, we have seen whether it's in 1854 or 2024, our civil servants have the capacity to adapt to the challenges of the day. But we must adapt today to prepare for the urgent challenges of tomorrow. And over the next six months, I will address these and other civil service priorities, including the use of consultants in the public sector, the responsibility of public bodies to the government. But for today, I want to reaffirm the kind of civil service I want to help create, a civil service that can meet the productivity challenge that I've set out, where the most innovative and inspired minds are called to serve, to stay, to be successful and fulfilled, where our processes are born of robust evaluation, where innovation supports how people actually use our public services, and our citizens deserve nothing less. And I believe we can do so much more to serve them better. So thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to the Q&A now. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. And I'll just put a few questions myself. Sure. And I'll be coming to the room. So make sure you've got your questions um, Ready. So, a lean, keen, and productive machine. I thought that was a very good um, little... Uh... Good speechwriter, I've got. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and we've also, of course, got Jeremy Hunt's uh, commitment on headcount cuts, getting mm. the numbers of the, civil servant, of, of the civil service down to pre-pandemic levels. But how can we make sure that 
the civil service actually reflects what it is that ministers want it to do, rather than thinking about numbers per se, mm. being lean, being smaller, as you said, how can we ensure that um, we don't just end up cutting civil servants and adding consultants because there hasn't been that strong change in prioritisation from, the, mm. from um, politicians about what they want the civil service to actually be doing? Well, Hannah, I think I'd start by saying, like, I don't sit there uh, in my office with a number or a sort of pure ideological approach to saying it's got to be X or Y. But Jeremy Hunt sort of has, hasn't well, he? He said well, pre-pandemic he's, levels. He's, 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 he has, but let me just develop this, right? So we were at 384,000 civil servants in 2016, and I think we're now at 495,000, right? Um, that is significant growth. Now, I've explained that Brexit and COVID, you know, when you're going to develop a furlough scheme in six weeks, yeah. you're going to need extra people. But we have come through that season. Mm -hmm. And what I've said in my speech and what I mean to say is that we've got to fuse the opportunities of technology, well-motivated, performance-managed staff with the sort of innovation in processing and thinking. And I gave a number of examples of that. And I think if we adopt that universally across everything we do, with clarity around evaluation of policy and how we can optimise its implementation, and that means you know, more investment in new tracks of people from digital. Um, you know, I think we're at 5.5% of the civil service are now in, uh, in, in classified in that digital track. We're aiming for 6%. But you know, in, the pub, in the private sector, it's 12%. So it is about the fusion of people innovative processes and technology that we can get to a better place. Um, and I also think, as I go through the budgeting round now with the Cabinet Office, and I look at the numbers of people that I see there, and I look at the gap between what was planned to be there and what has actually been there, I'm bound to ask, well, you know, what was not delivered this previous year? And you know, what structures have not been really challenged? And what delivery modes have been really challenged? What are people doing? Now, I'm not against any part of the civil service, but I do think it's important that we challenge on the combination of those three sort of core elements to delivery. Yeah, I mean, I think we absolutely agree that it's um, all, all those things you're saying are right. It's just it's the sort of starting with a number approach, which seems um, to not well, actually tally with what you're saying. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of cynicism and scepticism. And when we've seen numbers go up, I think, by 60,000 since 2019, then people... You, know, you need to know that there's a moment where you can actually say, look, this has got to stop. We can't have this keep going on. And what are we actually doing here? How can we be sure? And we need to have a, and I, as I think your blog was drawing out, we need a candor around what we're trying to do and how many people it takes to deliver it yeah. and, and how we do things differently. And there are ways of doing things differently. But I also think, as I said, AI is not a sort of panacea for every process reform. It has a massive opportunity. I think been looked at as you know, 28 billion of savings over time that can be made. But to deliver that, we need to execute it well. So it will be a combination. It will also be about saying, well, we'll, do, we'll need less roles over here and we'll need more yeah, on a absolutely. different employment basis and we'll need more secondees, we'll need more people from the private sector and we'll have to challenge ourselves on what that employment model is for a different configuration. Yeah, I mean, I was just really struck looking at our own Whitehall Monitor that you know, the civil service has increased by 3.6%, I think, over the last year. But around 80-something percent of those roles were in 
immigration processing, we're in prisons, yep. and actually the front line delivery, it's not what people think of when they no. think, cut the civil service, the Whitehall mandarins, it's actually those civil servants on the ground who are delivering, and as you said, there's demographic pressures and other things which are just increasing demand in those places. Mm. So it's difficult in some, you know, you can't replace a prison officer with it. Uh, <laughs> well, I think, AI. no, absolutely. And I, look, I think sometimes to, to, I think the point you made in your blog to set up today's conversations is that we often get into sort of, you know, quite superficial conversations about policy delivery. We get into headlines and you're right to say that through reclassification of different agencies, you find that the numbers are higher. But actually, you know, having gone through Brexit, we are doing things in different ways. Yep. If you think of the, the border checks and, as you pointed to, in, in uh, home office numbers, you know, that is because there's been a shift in responsibilities. And, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't then say, right, well, how do you still optimise the numbers of people doing this? Um, turning to another IFG mm. um, uh, theme that we, we talk about a lot, churn, um, mm. and I think... The churn alongside um, sort of low morale, increasing yep. spend on consultancy, all the things you pick out in your, in your speech. Mm. These are problems which have persisted. For, you know, they're yeah. not new. So no. how do you think you can get a grip and, and make a change? Look, I'm, I'm not naive to the fact that, you know, there's been lots of people before me and I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to find, you know, brand new solutions to every area. But it is about actually saying, look, Broadly, there's a consensus on most people that observe these things. Now, obviously, we've gone through a, a year of high inflation, cost of living pressures, and the restraint in pay has obviously been difficult for people across the economy. And that is obviously going to you know, re be reflected in some of these surveys that you see. But the point I want to make is that you know, I want highly motivated civil servants to say, look, I can see a pathway from coming in as a, you know, from the fast stream to, you know, to take over a particular area of government or move in different areas um, and a performance management framework that is going to reward that person to do so so that they don't actually clear off after five years because they're stuck in a role and they're shuffled one way or another. And I'm not, it's not as, as sort of bold as saying up or out, but it is about saying, well, you know, let's have something that is clearer about what it takes to succeed. I mean... I cannot emphasise enough the, the quality of the people. And I, you know, I was in the Treasury for six and a half years, including years PPS to, to Philip Hammond. And I, a few weeks ago, I had um, Philip Duffy, who's Chief Executive of the Environment Agency, down to my constituency. And I was sat in a village hall in, just outside Salisbury dealing with flooding. And you know, the depth of analysis and understanding that he had about how that agency was working and some of the challenges it, is it has. And then, and then I just remember back to, you know, previous times in the first half of last year when he was sat in the Treasury giving you know, pretty good advice on policy around productivity, growth and, and other things. So we've got fantastic people all across at all levels, but we've got to give people the opportunity to progress their career and, and, and not feel that they're sort of compromised by a performance management process that doesn't, and, and similarly, that doesn't do justice to their aspirations. But then equally, we can't homegrown grow all our talent for some of the delivery challenges we face and the opportunities we can do things differently in with technology and AI and so but it's a full storm to have a headcount cap and then find that contingent 
labor has gone up. I mean, that doesn't work for me. It seems illogical. So we need to get to grips with that. Um, but it is about taking ownership of budgets, processes, and all the things I mentioned. Yeah, and I mean, it's um, very welcome to hear you talking about um, focusing in on recruitment and on, you know, streamlining onboarding processes, which is something we've done a lot of work on, particularly in terms of bringing in talent into the, into mm. the civil service. And just as you say, the, the inefficiencies that make that too yeah. often ineffective, but also, as you say, the need to retain people once they arrive and make their careers fulfilling. So yeah. you're very welcome to hear you say that. I was intrigued. You, you had a line in your speech about improving accountability of civil yeah. servants, including to ministers. I wondered what you meant by that. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if anything goes wrong, a UQ will be put up and a minister has to go and account for it. Now, sometimes the, 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 the relationship between that conversation in Parliament and the actual underlying process is... Um, not quite as clear. And I, I think Francis Maud in his, in his report uh, makes clear this need for ministers to really be better sort of teed up to realise what opportunities they've got to influence and play a role in recruitment, to actually you know, play a role in the, you know, the arm's length bodies that they're responsible for. And so you know, it is about the professionalisation and clarification of what role the minister should play in holding arm's length bodies uh, to account. And of course, there's quite a range around you know, non-departmental public bodies, executive agencies, and, and you know, a whole range of arms. Now, I'm, you know, it's, not unre it's unrealistic for an individual minister to be involved in the day-to-day -day running of all of those entities. But there does need to be a clearer relationship between that ministerial accountability and delivery, an opportunity to influence that. I mean, we're elected as politicians. You know, the Prime Minister appoints us to ministerial roles, and you know, that's what we're there to do, and it's a serious business. And I think that general tenet of what Francis Moore talks about, which is about the professionalisation of ministerial, minister, ministerial roles. I mean, I was fortunate to, to do a role for four and a half years as economic secretary, and whether I achieved anything or not, it's not for me to comment, but I did recognise that doing a job for four and a half years, I think the longest anyone had done that particular job, was certainly welcomed by stakeholders because they had a, a familiar face. Now, politicians can't control that. There's one person who control that as a prime minister, and obviously he's got a range of pressures, or she has a range of pressures, which we've seen over recent years. So... You're talking there both about, in terms of accountability, which we, mm. again, um, think is really important, um, about ministers' role in recruitment, so the Francis Maud stuff, but also yeah. clarifying the relationship between ministers and arm's length bodies, because sometimes there are really good reasons yeah. to have things at arm's length, Absolutely. aren't there? I mean, you know, like with, with regulators, it wouldn't be appropriate for, give an example that I'm familiar with, for me to be lobbied, as I was, repeatedly by, um, you know, fintechs for... X regulatory approval. Well, you know, that's Nikhil's job at the FCA or Sam Wood's job at the PRA to handle, and you wouldn't expect that. Um, but, you know, often the political discourse distorts those lines of accountability, and you can call them out, and you hope that the commentary around it will be, you know, clarifying over who, who knew what when. But the bottom line is, you know, in a, a robust challenge in a democracy, you would you'd expect as ministers to be challenged, but you therefore need to clarify what you can do to, to influence that. Great. OK, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give up 
ask you my questions and uh, let you all ask some questions. So we, uh, my colleague Maddie has the mic. Um, I will take uh, groups of three, I think. If anyone's next door and would like to ask a question, please just come to the door. Um, and if you wouldn't mind telling us who you are and where you're from, then uh, that would be excellent. Can we go to David Liddington on the aisle, please? Uh, distinguished predecessor. Uh, David Liddington, trustee <laughs> of the Institute, um, uh, ex various government functions in the past. Um, John, um, you, you spoke uh, warmly about the functions mm. and how you wanted to see them strengthened. Is it perhaps time that the functions also became more centrally involved in the public spending reviews and allocation of budgets to departments so that the money and the people would be there and provided for as part of a project management approach to try and tackle some of these difficulties we've seen in multiple departments over the years under successive governments about budget overruns, timetable overruns, yeah. and so on, particularly if it's a cross-departmental priority, where too often no, the lines of accountability are very unclear and nobody wants to say it's their baby and it's their job to deliver it. Thank you. Would you like to pass it just forward to Dave here? Hi, uh, Dave Penman, General Secretary of uh, the FDA. The union represents the most senior civil servants. Mm. John, you've set out clearly the scale of the challenge facing government and the civil service, yet you've spent not an inconsiderable amount of time talking about what is quite a peripheral issue around staff diversity networks, including briefing to the press uh, on Sunday. Do you not think, given the, the scale of the challenge, that that um, uh, can be interpreted by many civil servants as a bit of a culture war and, and, and lacks a bit of priority of a minister? And secondly, you talked about pay. Paying the civil service is one of the few things that's mm. actually in the direct control of ministers. They can pull mm. levers and make things happen. So when can civil servants expect to see this better paid civil service that you talk about? Mm. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Ian Watson from BBC. Um, I just want to get a bit more clarity on some of the things you're saying about staff. So mm. picking up on staff networks, are there any activities that you think ought to be banned during work time uh, on staff reward, which was mentioned? Um, are you seeing, in your vision, um, extra pay for where you have vacancies, shortages in the civil service, or are you talking about across the board increases for a smaller civil service? And thirdly, um, when it comes to working in the office, uh, are you saying that senior civil servants would be expected to be in the office more than 60% of the time, and would their contract depend on that? Great. Well, thank you very much. I'll answer those questions in turn. So, uh, David, um, look, in terms of the role of the, the functions, um, I think that there's, a, there's variable success so I think some of the functions have been hugely successful, like the commercial function has been really important. I met with about six perm secs last week to go through some of my thinking and ask them for their input. And you know, some, sometimes that commercial acumen, that, that core, it's coming out of the core, the core function, can be instrumental in delivering in gains. But I don't think it's, it's true everywhere. And I talked about recruitment and on the people side, where I think there's you know, a great deal of frustration across the civil service around the efficiency of that. But the point that you drive at is this whole issue of ultimate control. And this is what Francis was talking to me about last evening, where you can get a conflict between a departmental accounting officer 
and the function. And then, you know, the Treasury has an annual process of budgeting. And I think generally we should try where possible to look at, you know, making that multi-year where we can. But, um, you know, what, what we're trying to do here is ensure that the spending control is informed about what levers that are needed to actually ma manifestly deal with that control. And I think there does need to be closer alignment. As, as a former Chief Secretary until middle of November, you know, I had different spending teams who were quite rightly concerned about what was happening in the budget this year, what was the you know, unspent budget on, on you know, Ardell and on capital and you know, what, what was happening. What I didn't see very much was you know, understanding of how you could influence those. And I think that is something that needs looking at. Now, there are some quite radical suggestions in Francis Moore's report around you know, the, the um, organisation of government, which I don't think I'm going to be able to address this year. But I do think there needs to be you know, better alignment um, I think that's what, what I would say on that. And I think the functions also need to evolve. The model that existed in 2013, if we think about the digital opportunities that exist now with AI, you know, how's that best delivered? You know, with the, with the, you know, the GDS and CDDO, what's the, what's the right now? You know, my colleague Alex Burkhardt is doing work with Laura Gilbert in number 10, looking at AI and sort of trying to get some of the use cases out there. But we must always be challenging ourselves is what's the optimal... So, for example, with the government property agency, you know, is that in the right shape, the right configuration to actually be the property agency of choice across Whitehall? Probably not yet. So we've got to look at that. So I think it's complicated, and we've also got to be... Yeah, what I see is a, a matrix between all the departments across the top, and I see all the functions down the side, and I think they're, they're, they're sort of the tick, if you like, by the departments about the use of the functions is probably not there in every case. And that's something that I'm keen to look at. Um, Dave, I'm going to ask your, answer your question. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't trying to stoke any sort of culture wars or the other point about diversity. I mean, I think that the civil services have a good story to tell. And I mentioned in my remarks figures, I think pages 59 to 61 in, in the monitor, uh, 1.45 to 1.47. And if you look at the representation um, of LGB plus uh, in the SCS, um, and you look at ethnic minorities in the fast stream, they are higher, significantly higher, than the numbers in the UK population as a whole. That isn't true when it comes to socioeconomic diversity in the fast stream. If you look at the data that you show for eligibility of school meals and uh, those who attended state schools. There's more work to be done. But I think the point is this. Where examples come into the press, um, yes, they need, they need scrutiny and they need <laughs> clarification and how representative they are. And that's why we're looking at it and going to issue guidance. But you know, when I was part of various networks when I was working in the private sector, you know, I would you know, do them before work or do them in the evening, and they were valuable parts of building you know, good relationships around peer groups within my uh, employment. And I, all I'm saying is I think the public expect, if taxpayers' money is spent, is spent on, on uh, civil servants and, and the whole of the public sector, they want to know that though these networks are important, that they're not actually taking a disproportionate amount of time. The problem we've got at the centre is that we don't have data points on all of this, and that's why um, I was very careful what I said. We want to look at it and issue guidance to clarify so people can be assured around that. Now, if I 
come to Ian in terms of, I think I've answered some of the questions about the staff networks. And I, sorry, I didn't mean to dodge the issue of pay either. Now, obviously, I've left the Treasury now. Now, we've, we've delegated a lots of pay things by department uh, to, since 1996, I believe. And, you know, I, I do recognise it's a difficult uh, issue across the economy. And obviously, I'm pleased that inflation is... Uh, is going down despite the small blip. It was, it was the chance said it was never going to go in a straight line. But I, I think that you know is, is presents a different context. And obviously we're we're you know uh, we're working to see growth return to to the economy. In terms of the in office point, look, it seems bizarre to me on day one for me to say right we're going to have sixty percent of people, sixty uh, percent of people's time in the office, and then not have any way of verifying it and measuring it. Now there'll have to be consultation around how we do that. But I'm just making a reasonable point, I think, that we need flexibility. The COVID has given us new ways of working, and that still allows two days of the week to work flexibly. But there is a real advantage. And most private, we've benchmarked it against what the norm is in the, broadly in the private sector. So I'm not attacking anyone. I'm just saying, look, people expect, if you're you know, paid by the taxpayer, to be working together. But you know, we obviously want to be reasonable. And obviously, we've given people the right to request flexible working. And you know, those sorts of things are part of a modern employment package. But we, you know, we, we, we've got to find a way of actually making sure it works. And we can't have a disconnect between the senior civil service and those uh, lower down. Great. Let's have another round of questions. Um, Maddie, you have a Chris here? Thanks. Chris Myers of The Times. I mean, just to follow up on pay, really, it sounded like yeah. what you were saying, you're accepting quite a lot of the logic of the IFG's critique of pay uh, f squeezes, which said it's a false economy in terms of driving consultancy spend, meaning that good people leave uh, and, and encouraging churn. Is the logic of what you're saying is that the quid pro quo for a smaller civil service, getting it back down to pre-pandemic levels, is that civil servants do get better paid, they do get a pay rise, and therefore you get good, uh, better people into it and government becomes more efficient. And were you saying at the other end that you also therefore need to just make it a lot easier to get rid of poor performers and get them out of the civil service entirely? Thank you. Uh, other questions? Gentleman behind you, Maddie. Uh, thank you. Graham Pendlebury, a recently retired senior civil servant from Department for Transport. Okay. Um, you're focusing, understandably, on public sector productivity, mm. um, but private sector productivity has basically flatlined since mm. 2010. So there seems to be a wider systemic problem in the UK yeah. that's not just limited to the public sector. So will you be looking at this kind of holistically, in a sense, and seeing what are the... What are, the, what are the common issues across those and, and, and how one might learn yeah. from them, how each might learn from the other. Okay. So, uh, and, and just secondly, and, and I hope this doesn't sound cheeky, but I couldn't help but notice that you were reading your speech from a paper copy in a red <laughs> folder with little coloured flags on it. Mm. Um, how is that an example of lean, mean and digitally enabled um, government minister? <laughs> Um, I think it does sound slightly cheeky. Um, I don't mind. I'm going to take an online it's question. It's a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take an online question uh, from Tim Durrant. Civil service churn is undoubtedly an issue in government, <laughs> but over the last few years, we've also seen huge amounts of turnover among ministers, mm. which is equally, if not more, damaging. How can political parties reduce their churn? Yeah, well, I think it's three excellent questions. Um, look, um, on this issue, Chris, of 
pay performance management and you know, there's a sometimes a, you know there's a, there's a different sort of contract around pensions job security and so on so you know what we've got to do is get the balance right but performance management is really important i do want people to be paid more when we can verify their performance now you know, that's a broad principle that i think <laughs> works. Now, you know, when I was in the private sector, and I do accept you can't totally map one on the other, but we need to map more of it. You know, that those that were doing well were rewarded better. But similarly, those were, that were not able to raise their game, you know, were, were asked to say, well, you know, this is, you know, um, perhaps not the right place for you, not just shuffle to another role. Now, I'm very aware that the the performance management shows that only two to three percent of people apparently are below standard. But what I don't have is confidence that we have universal performance management that deals with that. And should we should we be looking at new ways of driving up <coughs> performance overall by having you know di you know and in some workforces you probably would have that. And I can see also you know with different you know when I was economic secretary you worked with UKGI. They, they have a very different model of working than, you know, if you're working in a, in a job centre, for example. So we've got to be appropriate, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, it needs a serious look at, because at the moment, I don't think it's universally working well. So yes, I do want to have higher pay, where it's linked to performance management and proven, but there is a corollary of that around, you know, actually saying, well, you know, some people need to be let go more swiftly. Um, now, the issue of um, public sector productivity against private sector productivity, of course, you're right, and I'm not denying that. I'm here to talk about public sector productivity. And I think the issue of overinvestment in people as a solution to you know, the productivity puzzle, rather than actually investing in capital and technology, you know, is true across the public and private sector. So yes, absolutely, and that's why the, the Chancellor is is keen to put the sort of incentives in to encourage people to invest in capital, to make the economy more productive. But that's obviously been challenging recently on the back of you know, inflationary pressures and higher interest rates. Now, um, to your second point about my speech, look, I um, you know, would be very happy to put it on, online, but also if I'd have fluffed my lines, um, you would have all, and the journalists in the room would have loved it, and so it would be better for me to deliver it, hopefully reasonably coherently. Um, but you're absolutely right, we should look at using that. And if I look in the House of Commons, for example, when I started 14 years ago, we used to have all the papers for select committees laid out and printed out. Now, nobody uses them, because obviously we all use iPads, and so we do, do need to use technology and apply that, uh, obviously, universally. Um, to Tim's question, uh, just remind me about that, about turnover. A turnover of ministers, how political yeah. parties can reduce sure. churn of ministers. Well, I think there's much deeper problems here on all sides, you know, around the people that are going into politics. We live in a world where, you know, there are some disincentives to go into public life. The sort of scrutiny you have, we all know that. I'm not complaining. I don't want, you know, but what I'm just saying is, what is the aggregate pool looking like? And what are the motives of those that people go into it? Now, in terms of the specific question of, churn of ministers well it's not something that i can personally do anything about i, I uh, when i was sat um 
in my office in the Treasury on the Monday morning preparing for Treasury questions the next day on the 13th of November, and I was passed a note by my private secretary saying the Prime Minister wants to see you in a couple of hours. Um, I do what I'm asked to do. I was in, you know, in, and, and, and I'm happy to serve. And, you know, the, the point is, I did work for Eric Pickles for three years as his PPS, and he was in post for five years. David was in his post as Europe Minister for six years. And I think that is, and I told you about my job, so it does help when those roles, and Francis Maud famously was in, in his job for, for five years. I think that is ideal, but the interaction with politics uh, is often meaning that you don't get that, but I think it is desirable at all levels, and there's been some really good examples. I think after about 12 to 18 months, you begin to really master your brief if you're, if you're you know, on it, and I think that's... Uh, great advantage, and you know, I, I, I don't deny the point, but I can't do anything about it personally. Okay, I think we've got time for one last round of questions. So, sure, Maddie, in front. Hi, I thought one thing you didn't mention, but maybe important, is on the procurement are. side. Sorry, it's David Halpern, um, behavioral insights team, and number 10, first peers, and this place too. Um, is the as seen for Fujitsu, great frustration yeah. that our public service procurement systems didn't take into account past performance, which would seem pretty bizarre to the rest of the world. Given that I think that's now law in the Act in October, I wonder if you want to talk a bit to that and what's the scale of gains you see? How many other Fujitsus will be able to stop or flush out? Penelope Gibbs, Transform Justice. You talked a bit about the recruitment uh, backlog and the time it takes. Has um, government vetting of civil servants got out of hand and disproportionate for the jobs that they're going to do? Great. Thank got you. One final question? No, you're going to get away with two. Thank right, you. okay. Um, look, I can't speak to the, the whole of the lessons of Fujitsu. I mean, there's obviously an inquiry underway. You know, as somebody who worked for Accenture for on and off for 13 years, you know, tech companies get involved in lots of different projects in different ways. Now, you know, what I, from what I can gather, there was a, you know, a significant problem that with that software that was not addressed, and lessons will be learnt from that, and we will look at that. Um, but I think what we need is we need, you know, intelligent customers in government that can actually interrogate opportunities. When I was uh, in the Treasury, we, we, reformed, we were in the process of recalibrating NSNI, I think broadly to look at you know, what dependency existed on one firm. And you know, we should always be doing that. But to be honest with you, ministers need very clear you know, commercial and specialist advice on some of those uh, matters. Um, and then they need to drive the, the accountability. So I think it's a difficult question to ask, ask universally, answer universally with, with great clarity. But I do think, you know, when you've got hundreds of contracts from some of the big tech companies across Whitehall, that's not optimal. And it goes back to David's question about actually reforming the functions so that they're effective and fit for purpose to drive the productivity and efficiency that we need. On the uh, vetting service, I think there the vetting service has improved quite significantly and stabilised quite significantly in recent times from what uh, I've been told by officials and, and my ministerial colleagues. Your question was about the sort of 
the, the depth of it and so on. I'm not really sure how to answer that. I think what we do need is we need speed and clarity. We need sensitivity around dealing with individuals. But we, this is an area where I think, you know, actually you know, we should you know, universalise a single process as quickly as possible because whilst different departments have different needs, we should perhaps aim to stabilise it at the highest level and then deliver it efficiently as possible because people, you know, it's part of that recruitment problem. We're not doing it efficiently enough and, you know, we really ought to. We ought to be able to recruit people and manage them in swiftly. It's, it's the mark, I think, of their first interaction with a, a service that they may spend many years in. Great. Well, will you join me in thanking John for a really fascinating time? Thank you.